Hey there, this is D. Yvonne Vivers, your host for Birth Moms Real Talk, a podcast where you will hear the journeys of birth mothers who have placed children in adoption and also have some emotional and tough conversations, or you may say hot topics about adoption. Listen in. Good day, everyone. My name is D. Yvonne Rivers. I am your host for Birth Moms Real Talk. This is a podcast in which we talk to birth mothers to talk about their journey and see the ins and outs about what it really takes and what birth moms go through. Along with that, we cover some real hot topics that a lot of people are not talking about. You get the real deal and the real talk on Birth Moms Real Talk. I'm so happy to have as my guest today, Fran, who's another birth mom. Welcome, Fran. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm oh, so happy to uh, tell my story. Good, good, good. So, as we say, this is your time to share your journey, I like to say. So, tell me, first of all, and this is always something I, I put this as a regular topic of every time. What do you refer to yourself to as birth mom, first mom? You want to start with that and then just tell me your story. Well, I, I'm a mom from the baby scoop era. And when I came to be aware that I wasn't the only one out there, the term birth mom was the one that we were comfortable using. Okay. I know now that there are a lot of moms out there who prefer first mom. And I'm not particular. The essence of my relationship is not predicated necessarily on what I call myself. People ask me how many children I have. I, I tell them four. And so I identify myself as a mom to four children. My camaraderie with other moms, I, I'll usually refer to myself as a birth mom unless someone is uncomfortable. Okay. Very good. Very good. So let's just start back when I say the beginning, but maybe the beginning of your birth mom journey. Tell me about your life before your pregnancy. I was a normal high school kid. I grew up in a small town in Southern Connecticut uh, where everybody knew everybody else. And it was a different time. It was the, the early 60s. So this has been a very long journey for me. But I, again, I was just a normal teenage girl. Okay. So, uh, so what's that a normal teenage normal. girl in the 60s? What, what, what well, did that look I, like? <laughs> I lived in the suburbs. I went to high school. I participated in all the high school activities. I had a variety of friends. I wasn't one of the most popular girls. I wasn't one of the smartest girls. But I was a smart girl who had a lot of friends. And okay. that was enough for me. Okay. The family that I came from, however, had much higher standards for me than I probably had for myself. Mm. And that really shaped how I viewed the world. My, my dad was very strict. My mom was a lovely woman who was very concerned with how the world saw her. Mm. And so they had rules for me, but being I was the older of two daughters, I could kind of wiggle my way around and convince them to let me try stuff. Tell me more about they had a different perspective for you than you had. So if your parents weren't that way, what would you have expected of yourself? That's very interesting. I 
when I was a little girl, you know, I was the oldest grandchild on both sides. I was adored for who I was unconditionally. And yet, as I grew up, especially into my teens, my parents expected, you know, perfection. They wanted straight A's on the report card. They wanted perfect behavior. They just wanted me to be, I guess, made in their image. Okay. And they had grown up in New York City. I grew up in the suburbs. We were a Jewish family. And so they had both grown up in very Jewish neighborhoods in, in New York because at that time, New York was pretty much housing was separated by ethnicity. But in the suburbs, especially where I lived in, in Connecticut, everybody mixed. I had friends, all kinds of friends. And I didn't much care about the religious part of it. My friends were my friends. And so I think that played a large part in their accepting my choices. Okay. okay. They never didn't like my friends. And they, be, you know, I grew up in a very liberal family politically. And yet I think they talked the talk, but they may not have walked the walk. Wow. Okay. So moving forward as you were growing through high school to the point of just prior before you became pregnant, mm-hmm. how was it then? And how did you relay that to your family? Okay. Well, when I was 16, I met a young man who was three years older than I was. We were introduced by a mutual friend. It was at the end of my sophomore year in high school. And about a month after we met, he called me and asked me out on a date. And I didn't have a lot of rules about dating other than, you know, be home at the time we expect you home and just, you know, Behave yourself. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> Behave yourself. What does that mean? Because that back, means, back up when you're 16, what yeah. did, had you been shared about the whole facts of life, that whole did aspect? I know the facts of did life? you know yeah. the facts of life? I did. Okay. I knew the facts of life in a way that a 16-year-old knows the facts of life. Okay. I was taught okay. everything there was to be taught. Um, a girl in my neighborhood had gotten pregnant in the 10th grade, she was 15. And there was a lot of discussion about that in my household. And so, and also back in those days, good girls didn't do it. Ah, good girls. You got to define what a good girl is. A good Good girl. girl. Well, there were nice girls and good girls. Okay. (laughs) Good girls didn't do it. And they didn't let a guy get past first base. Okay. And not, you know, the, the, the prevailing thing was nice girls, let them do it. Mm. So I was a good girl and everyone saw me that way. So anyway, I proceeded to date this guy. And over time, over that summer, we really fell in love. Mm. And by that time, I was a junior in high school and he was a sophomore in college. We began to get really serious about six months into the relationship. He came home. He he left college to come home and he found another college to commute to. He changed his major and he wanted to be able to see me every day. And so we kind of fell into a routine and he'd pick me up from school. All this time, my dad wasn't sure that he liked this whole idea. They had no objections to the young man himself. Okay. He was a very nice young man. He was not of our faith. That troubled them both. And I think 
you know, at one point my mom said to me, you know, I hope you're not thinking about marrying this guy. And I said, oh, no, mom. But, you know, that's not important to me, but I know it's important to you. Well, as time went by, we started to talk about that. And kind of back then, if you didn't go to college, you got married. And I know for young people listening to this, it's appalling. But I remember reading Seventeen magazine and there were wedding gowns and hope chests and Mm. advertisements for linens. I mean, girls got married young and a lot of my friends did get married right out of high school. Um, Some of them went to college after they got married and some didn't. Did you feel like that was your options, either go to college or get married for yourself? Oh, no, I didn't have that option. I was going to college. That was very, very firmly embedded in my family ethic. Where a lot of people of that generation did not go to college. My parents did, both of them graduate from college. But they were married at, you know, 20 and 21. My mom commuted to New York every day for her senior year in college. So even though they married young, college was very important in my family. And so, you know, while I wanted to go to college, I was also very in love. And he and I started talking about getting married. And I was very conflicted because of what I promised my parents. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, when you're in a relationship for that length of time, things got to be a little troublesome in the intimacy department. You use a, I'm sorry, you use the word troublesome. Why troublesome because I loved him and he loved me and our passion was growing and it was very hard to stop. However... I can remember there was a time that following February, so we were together for nine months, actually, and he invited me to come to the college he had just transferred from for a a long weekend. And in those days, college weekends were really cool. They had all kinds of exciting activities. We went to, let, let me preface this by saying, I asked my mother if I could go. And she got all excited because she had commuted to college and she didn't know anything about the on-campus experience. And she thought it would be great for me to be able to do that. And I was going to stay in the girls' dorm and he was going to stay in the boys' dorm. And she said, of course you can go. Well, when my dad found out about that, he was furious. And he was not only furious with me, he was furious with my mom and he said, you told her she could go. So, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with it. He, he got very angry and he stopped talking to us. That was the way he punished us. Oh, so you just said stop. you just you just painted a picture of the atmosphere and environment in your home that if you didn't do what was expected, then you we got shut out the silent treatment and my mother, too. Oh, OK. Yeah. And my younger sister, although. She, she was a very different personality than I am. I'm not going to go into that here, but. So, so let's move was, a little forward. And yeah. when you actually did become pregnant, when was that? Okay. So I went on the college weekend and interestingly enough, that was the weekend that we had relations for the first time. Okay. Probably. And then it became more and more important for us to, to, to do that. And so there were afternoons after school, we'd go back to his house. His parents both worked, things progressed. And I probably got pregnant early that next June. So we were together almost a year at that point, just about a year. I did 
think anything of it. Oh, and I remember sometime that that August afterward, telling him that you know I hadn't had my my period. All he could say was, and then uh, all he could say was, well, when you when you do, we'll go out and celebrate. It was like we were both in such denial. Mm. But also, I want to say that at that time in Connecticut, birth control was very hard to get. It was illegal. Connecticut was a very Catholic state. The legislature was extremely conservative. And I remember my parents, they had to get whatever birth control they used from New York. There there was no way to buy it in Connecticut. Yeah. So it it was such a different time. Anyway, time went by. The following October... My dad had kind of had it with me and how much I wanted. Let's to go see back now. My you boyfriend, missed your period. Yeah. So denial. My periods were always irregular. Okay. So I just in my head, I was just it was just irregular. The following October. So now I'm probably what you said June, July, July August, August, September. So close like, to four months. Right. Not, you know. Right. Right. I was very slender, very thin. Wasn't getting any larger. Remember, I'm now 17 years old Mm -hmm. and my dad had kind of had it with how serious I was getting with um, my boyfriend and he absolutely insisted that I break up with him. And there were lots of tears and crying and screaming and I couldn't choose between my family and my boyfriend. If I chose him, where, where would I be? So, of course, I chose to listen to my father and I told him you know, maybe someday we can be together, but not now. Still not thinking you're pregnant. Still not thinking I'm pregnant. Shortly after that, I probably felt life, but again, was in denial. Wow. And in November, I said to my mom, you know, Ma, I haven't had my period since June. She said, well, we'll get you to, the do- to my doctor and we will, she'll give you a shot or something to bring on your period. And of course, I I went to the doctor. I went by myself. I'm now a senior in high school. And it's November of my senior year. And the doctor looked at me and she said, come into my office. I went into her office. She sat me down. She said, Fran, I think you're about four or five months pregnant. And I want you to go home and tell your parents. And this was on a Saturday morning. I will never forget it. And I went home. And oh, she said, if I'm going to call your house at noon. And if you haven't yet told your mom, I'm going to tell her. Wow. Okay. That was your ultimatum. You had to get it done. That was it. I I didn't have a choice. And I told my parents amid screaming and tears. And who was doing the screaming? My father. Okay. You know, how could you do this? You know, it was awful. It was awful. And I got pretty much out of control. And he said, you know, to my mom, get her a Valium, calm her down. Mm. (laughs) You know, control, get hold of your emotions, Fran. Mm. Controlling your emotions was very important in my family. Mm. So I was told I wanted to call my boyfriend and tell him. They forbade me from using the phone. And it was like I was in jail all of a sudden. I. They hired babysitters to, not babysitters, my aunt would come over if my parents weren't home and stay with me to make sure I didn't make calls or receive calls. So let me understand. Well, yeah. You were then 17? Yep. You I could not 17. use the phone and someone was there to watch you? All the time. Yep. Okay. Finally, they they 
happened on a plan. My mother's parents, who lived in New York, they were in there at that time. They were in their 60s, their, their late 60s. And my grandfather was still working. And they arranged a plan with my father that they would take me away. The girls who went away. That was me. <laughs> I was one of those girls who went away. In one way, though, I had the love and support of my grandparents who adored me. And they never passed judgment on me. They never got angry with me. I didn't have to go to a home. It, it was a blessing that they were able to do that. So they left New York and took me. And the doctor found a doctor for me in Tucson, Arizona. The reason they chose Tucson, Arizona was because uh, we didn't know anybody there. And so, and it was a good place to winter because it was warm in the winter. And they took me and they said, you know, you can come home after you have your baby. So that was and, a period of time you spent so totally with your grandparents in Arizona? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. I gave birth in March, early March. And I, they didn't tell me the sex of my baby. They wouldn't let me hold or see my baby. And I went home the next day without yes. my baby. So this was in the hospital, not a home for unwed mothers. It was a hospital no. that you had yes. your child in, and your yeah. grandparents were with you then. So yes, was all of this were. prearranged? Did you know what would happen or was that your decision? That was what I had no decisions. I had no choices. My dad made all the decisions. And um, I remember being in the hospital. I remember my, my grandfather picking up the phone and calling my parents. And then they, all they said to them was, it's all over. It's all over. It's all over. Well, maybe for them it was all over, but it certainly wasn't all over for me. Um, did, did, let me, did you feel like you had a voice? I mean, what did you say? What was your reaction? It's all over and that whole process that you just I just through. felt sick. I just felt sick. I probably felt a sense of loss at that time. Mm -hmm. I remember palpating my, my, my uh, stomach mm. and realizing it was now empty. I mean, I'd been mm -hmm. feeling life for, for four months. Right. So it, it was a very sad time. And I remember two weeks later, I signed the relinquishment papers using a pseudonym. I, uh, my dad had thought up a pseudonym for me. What you're telling me, if I understand you correctly, is that you did not go by your name. It was an assumed name that you gave birth under. Correct. I gave that name I mean, I used that name at the doctor, at the hospital. The people that I met in the apartment complex where we live knew my name was Fran. And they had been told a completely different story about how I had gotten married. My parents were furious. And then we had the wedding and they had the wedding annulled. And then I found out I was pregnant. So. Whoa, this is a whole new drama that was created. Well, there was a drama for Arizona. And there was a different drama for Connecticut. The Connecticut story was that I had been very willful. I had threatened when, when I, when my dad made me break up with my boyfriend, my dad said, if you attempt to see him again, if you want to go with him, we're going to send you away. And so they said that the story in Connecticut was that I was being extremely willful and they were sending me away to get my head on straight. 
Hmm. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. what was going through your mind, friend? What was the feelings? What were the emotions? I mean, how did you react to all of this? I felt like I had no voice. I had no, I wasn't allowed to have my feelings. I wasn't allowed to have my voice. I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. And it broke my heart because I I was between a rock and a hard place. Society didn't accept children of unwed parents. And you know, magically, if if you got married at 17 and had and had a child, everything was fine. Right. Although I did have cousins. My father had first a first cousin who had gotten his girlfriend pregnant. They got married. I think they stayed married for about 60 years till they till wow. he passed away. And they had three wonderful children. And I often thought about that, what that could have been. I, you know. That, that scenario would have been different. Let but me they, ask you, yeah. you said, and statement if I recall, that people didn't accept children of unwed mothers. Turn that around. People didn't accept unwed mothers. That's true too. Because it was That's you not true. being accepted to even have a voice, not to be received, not being heard. Mm-hmm. So you, yep. you're, you were silenced. I was absolutely silenced. And I remember on my 18th birthday, we were headed home and we were at the Grand Canyon. And I looked out over that expanse and I felt as empty as that Grand Canyon. And I cried. It was a powerful image that stays with me to this day. It was a very gray day. The snow was falling lightly. It was early April. And I just felt that emptiness and I didn't know how I was ever going to not feel it again. So let's, um, let's move forward. And that was then. So did you move on and have other children get married or what was your life well, like then? Got back home. They sent me right back to the same high school. <laughs> okay. Went, went, finished high school and, you know, got admitted to the honor society, got straight A's my senior year. I was going to prove to them that I was a worthwhile human being. Meantime, my dad said to me, we're going to remake you from the beginning. Obviously, we didn't teach you well enough. So we're going to remake you. So anything you want to do, anyone you want to see, you've got to get it by me first. Were those words used? We're going to remake you? Yes, those words were used. Now, you know, my father's coming out like a villain here. (laughs) But you have to understand the context of the times. I loved my father very much. And I know he loved me very much, but they were as much prisoners of the social construct of the times as I was. And so, you know, I'll, I'll explain more about that later, but I, I learned later on, much later on, about forgiveness, forgiving them and forgiving myself. Yeah. Anyway, I went on, I went to college, I finished college, I became a teacher, I, I met a guy my senior year in college who I would who turned out shared a first cousin with my father. So while we weren't related, the families knew one another. And I just felt if I got married, that it would somehow protect me. I could be the woman that I was supposed to be. And I know that wasn't really fair to my husband, but I did care for him and I did love him. And we had three wonderful children my older son, my oldest son, was born 10 years after I had my first. Okay. And okay. then I had two more children, you know, within the next six years. 
So moving forward, every day on my child's birthday or at the times leading up early in March until through Mother's Day, I'd cry in the shower. <laughs> I'd take that neat little box that I put on the shelf with all my, uh-huh. all my pain and I would take it down and I would cry and cry and cry and cry. How many years and was then, that? Pardon me? Years. So for years 26, you did that? 26 years. I did okay. That. I had never told my, my husband. I was going to ask that. I told him the Connecticut story. And it turns out, I mean, my boyfriend and I ended up teaching in the same school. It was messy. It was messy. And I never told him either. So Um, the the father never knew you were pregnant and had a child? To this day, does he know? No, he knows now. Finally, what happened in 1989, which is, you know, 25 years later, there was the plane crash over Lockerbie, Scotland. Mm-hmm. There was the earthquake in San Francisco, terrible, terrible earthquake, mm-hmm. and a host of personal issues that all combined to shock me out of my denial. And I'm talking about the denial of pain. Yeah. yeah. And my father died in 1989. Um, he was young. He was in his 60s. And when the time came for me to deliver the eulogy as the oldest daughter, I couldn't do it. Mm. I couldn't do it. There were no, I had no words Mm. because I, in retrospect, I had been silenced before. Right, right. And I guess I was so angry at having been silenced that now, you know, at, at 43 years old, I could not say anything about my father. And so my younger sister gave, a beautiful eulogy. I grieved for my father, but I couldn't put the box back. Mm. My father died in June. While he was dying in the hospital, my mother and he took me aside the day before he died. We were the three of us alone in his room. I guess my sister had gone to get coffee or something. And they said to me, my father said to me and my mother concurred, we forgive you. You've made, you've made yourself into a wonderful woman and we forgive you. And the thought running through my, my narrative is they're forgiving me. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's what kind of pushed me out of my complacency, my acceptance. Oh, out of the fog? Out of reality. the fog. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so it became necessary for me to straighten the record. Okay. And so I was, by the way, I was working at a social services agency at the time running like a big brother, big sister program. And they had an adoption department. They had social workers walking around. I had a social worker in the adoption department for a roommate for a time. I used to hear her on the phone. And I mean, all these things conspired at the same time. Yeah, conspired. I like that. It came they together. Were, I mean, it was, yes. it was like, this higher power was telling me, okay, mm-hmm. friend, now. Mm-hmm. And I had always said to my sister, I said, someday I'm going to find her. Someday. And so, Good. yeah. Good. So I, I well, went did you to not the- see that was a statement for you being um, your voice? You expressed that? Well, yeah. 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 Okay. And I, I remember I, I needed help, though, because I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to right. turn. Right. And I went to the director of 
the agency where I worked, who was a wonderful woman, and I knew she'd be non-judgmental. She was a social worker of the good kind, <laughs> not the kind that wouldn't let me see my baby. Uh-huh. And she she helped me find a therapist. Okay. And I found a wonderful, wonderful therapist who had been working with foster children. She'd never worked with a birth mother before. And I taught her everything she knew about <laughs> birth mothers. But she was the perfect therapist for me. And I, I adored her. After I saw her in therapy for about 15 years. She helped me through some real rough times mm. after that. And I, I, I can't say enough good things about her. Okay. So, yeah, I loved her dearly. So she helped me. She, she found me a support group. I went to the support group and I walked into this room of birth mothers. Mm. And I looked around and I didn't know what to expect. I thought I was the only birth mother in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and they all looked different, <laughs> yet they all had the same right. story. They were, uh, they, they were, stories. they were nice girls or good girls like you were. So many of, most of them were, most of them were. Yeah. We'd all have different experiences, right. but our emotions were all the same. Right. Right. And it, it was a blessing. It was such a blessing. It gave me the strength to tell my husband, to tell my children. And slowly I began telling everybody because right. I knew yes. that if I were to find my child, mm-hmm. there would not be a secret. That right. would have been a terrible thing right. to do to another human right. being. So secrets um, keep you hidden. Yeah. And secrets, you know, I during this time also, I decided to go back to school. And I entered a master's program in counseling. Okay. And I find that a great proportion of birth moms and adoptees have also entered that field. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a big surprise. Um, so did you find your daughter when you made that statement to your sister? Daughter. Find my daughter. I found, I found my daughter. The first phone call to the agency, I said, I had a baby on March 7th, 1964. This is my, the name I use. I said, I want to set the record straight. And I gave her all the correct information. I had lied about the father's name. I had lied about my name. And she said, she called me right back and said, you have a daughter. Wow. And it, How did I, it feel when you just shared all of that? Oh, my God. Just now, you mean? No, no. When you, to, the, oh. to the social worker. Oh, well, she worked in the agency. So I'm sure I wasn't the first phone call she ever had. But how did you feel releasing all of the truth? Oh, I felt wonderful. Okay. It felt so liberating. Yeah. And as time evolved, I became stronger and stronger. I mean, I was a 43-year-old woman wrapped in a 17-year-old head, yes, you know? Yes. And so And see you being I, you you being trained in it, and I just know for a fact that just living the life, we become stagnated or stuck at our trauma age, whatever that age may be. I absolutely was stuck. You know, when I was going through the motions of doing all the things I was supposed to do, Mm -hmm. still trying to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And I felt like an onion peeling Mm -hmm. away all the layers. Peel the thin layers away. Yeah. And to find who I was inside to become the real me. And that's been an amazing journey. So tell me about the relationship. With you and your daughter now. Well, the I, yeah, I won't go into all the details about how I we found sure. each other actually, sure. but 
I, I, I flew out to see her a little over a month after we met okay. on the phone. Okay. She called me first, by the way. Okay. And we were on the phone for about two hours. She was wonderful. In the mail the next, oh, the next week, I got a whole bunch of pictures that she and her adoptive mother had put together okay. to, to show me all through her life, the pictures of her all through her life. And what the, when I first saw the pictures, I thought, first of all, she grew up in Los Angeles. So she's very glamorous and she's <laughs> very beautiful. Okay. And I looked at her and I thought, she looks like me with her father's mouth. Wow. And, and even today when I look at her, and it's been 31 years since our reunion. Oh, wonderful. I look at her and I want to cry because she looks just like me with her yes. father's mouth. Yes. It's called humanity. Um, <laughs> it's called you humanity. Can't, you, you can't deny genes. You cannot, you no matter you how much you may be in denial, when you see yeah. and you're looking at your child and that child is looking back at you and it's like a mirror, it's like, yeah. But she looks more like me than my other three children do, which okay. is like crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's totally crazy. Anyway, I felt I had to share the news. So I did go to see her, her father and okay. tell him the news. Okay. He was shocked. He had never told his wife about our relationship, even though we knew each other, because again, we're it's a small town. Right. And so he's, you know, he said, okay you know, take care of what needs to be done. And so in May, I flew out there and I took a whole bunch of pictures myself and it was wonderful. I think part of the success of our reunion is due to her, how wonderful her parents were. Okay. Um, Talk to me about that. What did they they do? They are, well, they were the same generation as my parents. Uh, Molly turned out to be the youngest of three children, all adopted. and she had two older brothers, much older than she. And I couldn't have asked for better parents. That's wonderful. Parents. As a matter of fact, it's at one point, it, I felt like, why couldn't her mother be my mother? <laughs> <laughs> because she was so giving and so loving and really took the time to get to know me That's and wonderful. I, her. When Molly went, the first time that I went out there, Molly had to go to work one day. And she and I went to an art museum together. And we spent the day, we had lunch, we spent the day, you know, looking at the museum. And and here were all these works of art that I had studied in college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever wasn't in New York was in L.A. at the right. time. So right. it was just a wonderful experience. And every time since then that I had spoken to her mother, seen her mother and father, they have been nothing more than wonderful. wonderful. So how... Mom, how- let me ask you, how is it with Molly having her two moms? Well, she doesn't call me mom. She calls okay. me Fran. Okay. But her two children call me grandma. Okay. And they, I've been in their lives for their entire lives. They're, okay. they're 13 and 18. Okay. And wonderful, wonderful kids. That's uh, so wonderful. Just, just great. Just absolutely great. Her mom passed away about three years ago. Okay. Her father's still alive. Okay. And he's the same age as my mom, who passed away five years ago. So oh. they outlived my parents. Okay. And I, it was very sad when her mother died. She was very, very close very to her good. mother. And very, yeah. I understood, 
you know, let, let me say this. In the 31 years of our relationship, I have always put Molly's needs ahead of mine. And I think that's what a mother needs to do to have a good relationship. She was never selfish with me on, on the, on the minuscule number of times when something she did or said hurt me. Mm-hmm. I just put it away. I didn't right. confront her with it. I, I, I do walk on eggshells a little bit, okay. but only because I don't ever want to lose her. I really okay. love her so much. Right. And, right. and we never stop loving our children. I, I always say a lot of times people would think birth moms were placed because they don't love their child. It's no. the opposite for me. We yeah. placed because we do love. So well, much. if I'd had a choice, I probably wouldn't have placed her. Right. I probably would have gotten married right. and raised her. Right. But I didn't have a choice and I didn't have a voice. Yeah. And right. we were both lucky that she was raised in such a way. Yeah, system. that is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And as I said in the very beginning, Fran, Birth Mom's Real Talk is about real talk. Thank you for sharing the intimate story of your journey. But we also talk about, I call it, the real talk topics. And so what's a topic you like to talk about? Just telling it from your perspective as a birth mom, what would that be? I think I'd like to talk about how I achieved peace in my life. Okay. All right. And I think it was a combination of me actualizing who I was, becoming the person that I was destined to be. It was part of Molly's willingness to accept me into her life in whatever way she could and can. And all that therapy. <laughs> yes, yes, all yes. All that therapy. Right. You know, it turns out, you know, my, my marriage ended after 30 years. Wow. Um, Sorry to hear For that. a host of reasons, probably because I grew up. <laughs> Interesting. That's another podcast. <laughs> that's another podcast, yeah. But I have found a wonderful man to spend the rest of my life with. Wow. And, yeah, he has been most supportive, adores my children, adores all of my children. I found peace by looking inside myself and saying, you've done the best you can with the tools that you have then and the tools you have now. Very good. Um, The other piece is I used to write. I wrote all the time. Mm -hmm. I wrote poetry when I was young. And when I started searching for Molly, I started writing her letters. Uh and journaling. And over 27 years, (laughs) I ended up writing a book. Right. I was going to ask you to share about what's the title. I ended up writing a book that's, it's called The Story of Molly and Me. Okay. It's a memoir of that time. And it has all the little goodies that I left out. Okay. (laughs) Of the story today. Okay. And if you need to look up my full name. Okay. Fran Levin, uh, Fran Gruss Levin is, okay. is the name. Um, and the book Gruss can be my found. Name. Book can be you found. can find it on Amazon. It's okay. in Kindle and hard copy, uh, soft copy. Yeah. And that too brought me a lot of peace. It very was, good. yeah, I was very careful not to hurt anybody. Sure. Needlessly. And I yeah. think it shows all the love I have for all the people who touched me in my life. Right. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for sharing, Fran. This has been so awesome. You've been listening to Birth Moms Real Talk with host D. Yvonne Rivers, where we talk real talk. 
and we talk about topical discussions that probably looking in that only birth moms really encounter and engage. And hopefully you really can take in Fran's journey and hopefully help you. Thanks again, Fran. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening into Birth Moms Real Talk, where birth mothers share their journeys and we have an open and honest conversation about adoption. If you would like to share your story or you have any comments, you can reach us at birthmomsrealtalk.com or email us at Yvonne at birthmomsrealtalk.com. If you like what you heard, we would appreciate your support on Patreon as a supporter. Find out more on our website. Tune in next time. See you then.